Welcome to the Someone Somewhere podcast. It's Saturday, July 1st, and I'm your host, Nicole. This is episode three. Lead has been a topic that has been fascinating to me for some time because of the connection to my urban farm initiatives. While I was living in Brooklyn, I found out that while I was trying to farm in my backyard, that it had 986 parts per million lead. I got it tested at Brooklyn College, and they actually give you a chart that tells you what safe levels are, and for farming, a safe level is around less than 60 parts per million, but honestly, the lesser the better, because lead has no purpose for us, and it's obviously it's a neurotoxin, and it's not good for us, so... Lead to me brings together the issues of environmentalism, racial justice, class, segregation, and public health. So I want to talk about what I've learned concerning the history of lead and also the history of industrial pollution, because we would not have widespread lead contamination if it was not for a collusion between the government and General Motors, as well as a few other industrial giants like DuPont, Sherwin-Williams, and Union Carbide, which you may remember from the Bhopal disaster. And also, you know, lead has been banned here in the USA, kind of but it's still able to be sold by American companies in places like Cameroon, Haiti, Thailand, Belize, El Salvador, Guatemala, Peru, and others. So I really think this is an international crisis that needs to be addressed, and this podcast is going to go through the history of lead and its inventor of lead gasoline, Thomas Midgley Jr., um, which is what connects led directly to General Motors Corporation, which began in Flint, Michigan in 1908. So I'm sort of going to build this history for you and also talk about how a cover-up ensued, which made lead widespread, and that is how we get lead in our cities. So let's get into it. Lead is a carbon element with the highest atomic number, 82, of any non-radioactive element. It is a neurotoxin, it mainly damages the brain and the nervous system, but it's also been linked to blood disorders as it accumulates inside the body. It has been extracted and used for thousands of years by many different peoples for many different things. Um, Some of those include writing and drawing materials, currency, and even the Roman aqueduct system. Uh, And this is because it was one of the first easily smelted metals. Ancient botanists and physicians also remarked on its harmful effects to the mind, but it isn't until the Industrial Revolution that lead production rates rise higher than these uses of antiquity. And actually, by 1900, the United States becomes the world leader in lead extraction, shifting from Britain. So in this way, I see American industry as inextricably tied to unearthing lead and also finding a way to monetize lead quickly. The demand was manufactured mostly for plumbing, painting, and leaded gasoline. At the turn of the 20th century, many accidents were taking the lives of industrial workers, like those who built skyscrapers, railroads, worked in mines, or tunneled through rocks to build subways and water tunnels. Much attention was paid to industrial accidents that took an immediate toll, But there were also a few industrial toxins like lead, mercury, and phosphorus, which had acute symptoms and caused chronic disabilities. So they became the focus of intense reform efforts in the early 1900s. It is often obscured when we talk about lead today that there was no knowledge or basis of knowledge that there was anything wrong with lead before it was banned. And what I'm trying to educate 
people about is that there were actually many industrial hygienists, managers, and physicians that were taking meaningful steps to protect the workforce from lead and paint in the 1920s and teens. So there was actually a lot of reform beginning to take hold, and right at that time is where ethyl lead being added to gasoline happens, and everything changes from that point. Enter Thomas Midgley Jr. In the early 20th century, a number of different automobile fuels were being tested, including gasoline, ethanol, alcohol, and various blends of these and other fuels, and they were competing in a wide open market. They were trying to make cars run faster and make them more powerful, so they were experimenting with different types of fuel. Now, alcohol and ethanol blends were the first fuels that were capable of providing power to these new engines, which demanded high octane. However, the advantage of these fuels were that they were renewable and non-polluting. So these advantages that we would think are advantages were actually working against General Motors because it had a direct relationship with the DuPont company and the petrochemical industry in general. So they were seeking to develop a fuel that they could patent and profit from. And that is where Thomas Midgley Jr. comes in because he starts working for General Motors in 1916. By 1922, he had invented tetraethyl lead and he had invented it at the General Motors Research Laboratory in Dayton, Ohio. Now this promised to raise the compression at which gasoline burned and that eliminated the engine knock that decreased power. General Motors quickly contracted with DuPont and Standard Oil of New Jersey to produce tetraethyl lead. Ethyl was the brand name for leaded gas, that is gasoline containing the additive tetraethyl lead, and was placed on sale in test markets February 1st of 1923. In 1924, DuPont and GM created the Ethyl Gasoline Corporation to produce and market it. In 1923, Thomas Midgley himself comes down with lead poisoning and actually has to take a hiatus in Miami, Florida. When he returns, he participates in a press conference to demonstrate the apparent safety of lead. And in this demonstration, he poured lead gasoline over his hands, placed a bottle of the chemical under his nose, inhaled it for a minute, and declared that he could do this every day without succumbing to any problems whatsoever. As I said before, there was already an organizing happening around lead, and so there was an immediate pushback when lead gasoline was invented. William Mansfield Clark, a professor of chemistry, wrote to A.M. Stimson, who was the assistant surgeon general at the Public Health Service in 1922, warning of a serious menace to public health, and he noted that the early production of lead was leading to several very serious cases of lead poisoning, and he also worried that the use of gasoline would result in atmospheric pollution and that lead oxide dust would remain in the lower stratum of the atmosphere. A month beyond that, H.S. Cummings, who was the Surgeon General, respectively asked Pierre S. DuPont, the chairman of the board of General Motors, whether the public health effects of tetraethyl lead manufacturing and use had been taken into account, to which Thomas Midgley himself responded that the question has been given very serious consideration, although no actual experimental data has been taken. GM and DuPont were confident that, quote, the average street will probably be so free from lead that it will be impossible de to detect it or its absorption. 
Being savvy, DuPont and GM recognized that there was so much apprehension around the potential hazards of tetraethyl lead that a private study would be met with too much skepticism. And so they instead decided to use the U.S. government as a tool for validating the science that they wanted to spread in order to make a lot of money off of tetraethyl lead gasoline. So they decided to contract the U.S. Bureau of Mines, which was trusted by the industry and often performed testing as a service to the mining and metal industries. They had their president, Charles Kettering, request one provision, and that was that the Bureau refrain from giving out the usual press and progress reports during the investigation because they were claiming that there would be a lot of media hysteria around around it if it were to come out that there was a problem with lead. So they put a gag order on the scientists working at the Bureau of Mines. And they even uh, added stipulations about avoiding accurate scientific terminology in favor of a trade name, Ethel, which reflected the tentativeness with which the Bureau approached these giant corporations. And the administration that we're talking about is President Calvin Coolidge's administration. Newspaper reports swirled in 1924 when Standard Oil's Bayway Labs in Elizabeth, New Jersey had 40 of 49 workers poisoned by tetraethyl lead. This included Ernest Olgert of Elizabeth, a laboratory worker who died on a Sunday in 1924, and witnesses had declared that he'd also been hallucinating and severely paranoid. So all of this caused the media to go nuts and have huge headline front page stories in the New York Times about how this gas was making people insane and uh, even called it insanity gas or loony gas. And there became this, uh, rightfully so, this moment of hysteria about uh, ethyl gasoline as these victims of that were industrial workers were dying. And, you know, in good capitalist fashion, the workers were blamed for their own deaths. And here's Thomas Midgley Jr. again. What a guy he was. Um, he was at a press conference about the the mass poisoning and he claimed that the true responsibility for the crisis rested with the workers who quote regardless of warnings and provision for their protection had failed to appreciate the dangers of constant absorption of the fluid by their hands and arms and he argued that workers should have known from the precautions taken by the company that lead could be dangerous. So the circumstances around these workers' deaths definitely put doubt in the public's mind about the Bureau of Mines' findings, and people were questioning, scientists, labor activists, were questioning how this report could possibly be the truth if these people were all being severely poisoned and even dying, and so it had to be addressed. Now, of course, following this was a very specific and calculated counteroffensive, and Dr. Emery Hayhurst of the Ohio Department of Health emerged as one of the key figures in the attempt to sell tetraethyl lead to the American public. And he's of special interest in this period because of his established reputation as a respected and independent industrial hygienist. But what was not known about him was that at the same time, 
when he was advising labor organizations such as the Workers' Health Bureau on industrial hygiene matters, he was also working for the Ethel Corporation as a consultant. So not so apolitical are we scientists, uh, especially when we're being paid by these huge corporations. So correspondence between Hayhurst and the Public Health Service indicates that he was supplying advocates of tetraethyl lead with information regarding the tactics to be used by their opponents. Even before the Bureau of Mines issued its report, Hayhurst had decided on his own that tetraethyl lead was not an environmental toxin, and he advised the Bureau of Mines to include a statement that the finished product, ethyl gasoline, as marketed and used both pure and diluted in gasoline, retains none of the poisonous characteristics of the ingredients concerned in its manufacturing and blending. So that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but that was a good try on, on his part. Despite this coordinated effort, there was still through the media and through public health leaders, there was still quite a bit of doubt about lead and more was coming out. People wanted to know more about it and become more educated. So Hugh Cumming, the Surgeon General of the Public Health Service, contemplated calling a national conference to assess tetraethyl lead. And there was some opposition to this, but nonetheless, in 1925, the conference convened in Washington, and every major party was represented, uh, engaging industry chemists and engineers and it began with statements from General Motors, DuPont, Standard Oil, and the Ethyl Corporation outlining the history of development of leaded gasoline. Now this part gets super interesting to me because, of course, uh, Frank Howard, the first vice president of Ethyl Corporation, provided the most complete rationale for the continued use of tetraethyl lead. And he asks if, is this a public health hazard, and then says, no, it's not. In fact, uh, quote, our continued development of motor fuels is essential in our civilization. And the development of tetraethyl lead, after a decade of research, was, quote, an apparent gift of God. So Howard pivoted here and basically said to anybody questioning it, you know, you're one, you're questioning the will of God, which is, you know, just classic. And then secondly, you're, you're a reactionary because you don't want progress and you don't want industry. And so this was their defense. Now, those who opposed the introduction of leaded gasoline disagreed with every fundamental position of these industry representatives. They believed it was wrong to accept that progress entails inevitable risks, and instead they believed that the government's job was to be responsible for protecting public health. Secondly, they pointed out that what we would now call inorganic lead compounds were already known to be poisons. So this wasn't, again, this wasn't even new research. Thirdly, they rejected the notion that the workers were responsible for their own poisoning, of course. And fourth, and probably most important, they believed that public health should take precedence over the needs of the industry. Dr. Yandel Henderson, a Yale psychologist, emerged as one of the strongest critics of the industry, telling the people in a press conference that lead was a public menace and a serious infectious disease infecting the nation's health. 
and he was completely horrified that thousands of pounds of lead would be deposited every year in the streets of every major city in America, and, quote, the conditions will grow worse so gradually and the development of lead poisoning will become so insidious that lead gasoline will be in nearly universal use and large numbers of cars will have been sold before the public and government awaken to the situation. Henderson opened up the debate beyond the debate about industrial workers and their working conditions into a public health issue that affects an entire society, and that's really what is so important about his criticism at that time. And opponents were extremely concerned that the industry was equating the use of lead with industrial progress. And reacting to the Ethel Gasoline Corporation representative statement that Tetral Ed was lead, excuse me, was a gift from God, Grace Burnham of the Workers' Health Bureau said it was not a gift of God when those 11 men were killed or those 149 were poisoned. And she, you know, questioned this idea that, you know, progress must have this much sacrifice societally. However, most public health professionals did not agree with Henderson and Hamilton. For the vast majority of them at the conference, the problem was how to reconcile the opposed views of advocates of industrial progress and those who were frightened by the potential for disaster. So things were very unclear at this time to the public, and there was definitely a public relations war that was happening. So I have something in front of me that is very fascinating. It's from June 1932 in Ladies Home Journal, and it's a full-page ad for ethyl gasoline. And the, <laughs> the tagline is, Ethyl is to gasoline what vitamins are to food. And it shows a child in a very small motor vehicle being handed a banana from a man holding a basket of food. So, yeah, I would say that is pretty problematic right there as an image. But this is just one example of the visual side to the public relations campaign to make lead supposedly, you know, considered safe. So uh, another... Another one of these ads comes from Saturday Evening Post in 1933. The tagline reads, This car needs ethyl. The ethyl corporation promotes its lead gas additive, comparing it favorably to non-lead fuels. For the next four decades, all studies about the use of tetraethyl lead were conducted by laboratories and scientists specifically funded by the ethyl corporation and General Motors. So that, you know, goes to show you that, uh, you know, the industry can use their own rationales to justify the 60 years that would follow of, of lead gasoline being sold in the United States in mass in many, many products. And this is an unfortunate testament to the power uh, that industry holds when um, there's a profit to be turned and also, in a way, how corporations control the government and that it's not actually a, a process of accountability by these corporations, but rather that these corporations are funding the research that they want to see disseminated to the public. And I think that when it comes to lead, this is something that we need to get to the core of every time that we talk about it, that it's not an isolated incident. It's not an isolated city. It's actually a coordinated effort that took almost a hundred years to really, really bury. Um, and eventually, you know, they would lose that fight when in the eighties 
there starts to be some serious backlash to get lead gasoline. And in 1986, it's federally banned. But by this time, 68 million people, especially children, have already been exposed by that time. So very, very heavy stuff here that we're talking about. Now let's go back to Flint for a second. Uh, General Motors Corporation begins in Flint in 1908, and between the years of 1919 and 1928, uh, many historic buildings were built right along the Flint River, um, and not just General Motors, but many of its suppliers also put their industry along the river, and decades of industrial dumping by GM and its suppliers is what caused the Flint River to become polluted. So that that is an environmental contamination that has existed since tetraethyl lead was invented and used by General Motors for gasoline, for car paint, for as a use as a raw material. So I think that when we talk about what happened with Flint and them deciding to buy water from Detroit, um, that is because of an environmental contamination that is nearly a century long. So that is not something that began with the governor, although he is someone that was clearly criminally negligent and should be fired and should be held to the highest extent of the law. But really what I'm trying to say with this history is that there is really a historical echo um, happening. Actually, in 1937, there was a strike by auto workers in Flint, and for 44 days, hundreds of workers occupied the factory buildings. Um, they were even opposed by the National Guard and police. Um, GM tried at that time not only to defeat the workers, but also the environment by breaking up the workers' strike. So this really brings me to the point that science is definitely political and it's definitely influenced by politics and of course by capitalism which is the system of production that we currently have and had during during the invention of tetraethyl lead. And I think it's really interesting this in the story the scientists and public officials that opposed lead versus those that supported it and how that played out. For instance, Herbert Needleman, this is in the 70s now, um, was publishing research about lead, and the National Institute of Health actually charged him with scientific misconduct. Whereas in contrast, in 1941, the American Chemical Society gave Thomas Midgley Jr. its highest award, the Priestley Medal, and this was followed by the Willard Gibbs Award in 1942. And he also held two honorary degrees and was elected to the United States National Academy of Sciences. And in 1944, he was elected president and chairman of the American Chemical Society. So it really goes to show, you know, if you are with the establishment and you are willing to be paid off by these corporations, you can gain a lot of notoriety and fame and comfort and your word will be taken very seriously. Whereas if you find yourself in opposition to these corporations, there will be a significant campaign to stop you from getting the word out. And this is the main reason why lead is in all of our cities and in all of our soil. It's because we could not fight the PR campaign that was GM. DuPont 
and the Ethel Corporation. And I should also say that Standard Oil is now ExxonMobil. So really, we're, we're still talking about the same giants. Um, and they are the ones that are responsible for this century of industrial waste that we have. And they're also conveniently left out of the narrative about lead. And that's something that I find so surprising. I'm reading all kinds of articles about Flint and not uh, once have I ever heard anything mentioned about General Motors and their role in all of this. And most of the protests have been very directed towards the government, the governor, and it seems like uh, they aren't even getting close, the public is not even getting close to holding them accountable. So I just really want to make it known that GM is the one is the one corporation I would say that is really so responsible for for this and that their lobbying campaign worked very well. But now we as the public are the ones who have to deal with the healthcare costs associated with this and we have to deal with the you know effects that it's had on children and brain development and how that really impacts us all on a societal level and then of course you know who's being impacted the most but black and brown children because they're the ones that are most likely to live in these industrial contaminated areas so they are the ones that are going to be the most impacted and are also the most underrepresented and flat out the least valued in our society and there's definitely something wrong with that if this was occurring in other neighborhoods that had primarily white populations this entire story would be told very differently and I'm absolutely sure of that. So all in all this is the foundation to understanding lead and how it ended up in in our society and now we have to deal with what we do next. And one last thing about Thomas Midgley Jr. is that the, I find this this man, first of all, okay, he created lead gasoline. Did you know this? He went on to create CFCs. So he destroyed the ozone and he destroyed the soil and the water. It's just unbelievable that one person could do so much damage to the environment. He really is one of the worst scientists that I have ever heard of. And to really top it off, he contracted polio, which made him very disabled at the age of 51. And so this led him to invent an elaborate system of strings and pulleys that would help lift him from his bed. And the system itself that he built caused his death when he was accidentally entangled in the ropes of his device. And he died of strangulation at the age of 55. So that's Thomas Midgley Jr. What, what an unbelievable life and story. I just, we, we don't talk about this guy. We don't know who he is. And I just think, considering the impact that he has had, he needs to be a household name and everyone needs to know what he's done and, and what we need to do to reverse it, really. So this is my discussion on lead. I hope that you've enjoyed it and I hope that you've learned something and we'll definitely be continuing to talk about this topic, definitely in regards to farming because a lot of the solutions around how are, we how are we gonna deal with a heavy metal toxin that cannot just be destroyed or disposed of, 
there's actually a lot that gardening and creation of compost and new soil can do to bind to lead and render it ineffective. So I'll, I'll definitely be getting into that at another time, but really I just wanted to lay out the history of lead and lead poisoning and hopefully you guys like it. As always, thanks for listening. If you like the show, share it with someone you love. This concludes episode three of the Someone Somewhere podcast. Until next time, be well.